This message was recorded at a Christ Central Leaders Day in Bolton. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. It's a fantastic opportunity for us to welcome John and Sue. John and Sue are great friends of ours. They've been faithfully coming and serving us personally for about 10 years now, over in the northeast and now over here in the northwest. And wherever they're up, we always get them to speak into this context because I so value their wisdom, their pastoral input and their teaching ability. So let's welcome our dear friends, John and Sue. I think it's John this morning. Thanks so much, Jeremy, and uh, I'd just like to say to Jeremy, thanks so much personally again for inviting us. We don't take that for granted. We feel very privileged that you have continued to invite us over the years, and uh, it's a real privilege to, to be with you guys here today. And I uh, always look forward to these days, slightly nervously, because speaking to a, a group of leaders, but really appreciate the, the opportunity. Uh, great to see so many of you here too, which obviously speaks of the health of what God's doing in this sphere. And uh, the way that we're going to run today, I know it's uh, kind of labelled as a training day, and I try and bear uh, that in mind. So I'm going to take the same f- format this morning that I've taken the last couple of years, and that is uh, I want to take quite a challenging passage of Scripture, and I'm, I'm actually hopefully going to stretch you a bit. We're going to take quite a a uh, theological in-depth look at this scripture, so I, I hope there's some, some sort of solid uh, theology there. Uh, and uh, at the same time, what I want to do is warm your hearts. I don't just want to put this across in a kind of lecture form. I want to warm your hearts as well. And as Jeremy said, we are hearing stirrings again of new things happening in Wales and in other parts of the nation. And uh, I think all of us here would believe that whatever God does by his spirit, we always want to come alongside that with strong theology. Uh, and uh, I, think that's a real, I think that's a real contribution we can make through our family of churches. I really do. I thought those couple of words we had about waiting at the moment uh, were very important because I think you know, when you hear of things happening, we do need to wait. Can I just say, let's be careful that we make it a biblical wait, which is that actually we're crying to God in that time. It's not just the length of time, um, but in the psalmist we're often exhorted to wait upon God, uh, but uh, the psalmist wait upon God by reminding God of the promises that he has made and the deeds that he has done. Uh, so I think uh, certainly let's wait, and there may be time, of course, but uh, we need to be actively waiting and calling upon God. This afternoon we'll do it a bit differently and Sue and I are going to team it this afternoon. We're aware that this is a, um, a, co- a congregation in which there, there are ladies here as well as guys and uh, so Sue and I are going to contribute together this afternoon. We're going to team it together, speak alternately and uh, we're going to talk about seasons of ministry. Uh, so I've uh, been in ministry about 44 years now so we feel that we can perhaps... Uh, share something out of that. Now, I actually feel quite moved as I open my Bible this morning because there's Alan Rose, such a a friend of mine over the years, who says he's speaking to God and praying about the songs this morning. The last song he did, I'm going to speak about the Bride of Christ and uh, (laughs) in in, uh, Revelation chapter 19. And uh, Alan led us through that song with the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. So, I just feel that... uh, 
Um, either Alan or I were in the spirit in terms of, of this. <laughs> or both, possibly. <laughs> yes, uh, really appreciate that. So, if we could go to Revelation 19, I'll really be focusing in on verses 6 to 10, but I, I want to set this in context in terms of what I say. So, let me read from, from verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up for ever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God, Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Finding in bright and clean was given her to wear. Finding in stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Now, over the years, uh, we've heard, and many of us here will have given a great deal of teaching on the church as the body of Christ. And although we probably quite regularly use the term the Bride of Christ. I don't know, perhaps we have so much teaching on the subject or the topic of the the Bride of Christ, which is what I want to concentrate on here this morning. In fact, the the teaching or uh, the the topic of the Bride of Christ is important for at least uh, two reasons. For one thing, it assures us that history is going in a definite direction. And then the other thing that we can say about it is that it underlines to us that God's ultimate victory is certain. Uh, so these are two very important aspects of looking at the church as the bride of Christ. Now I do want to set this in context uh, and uh, I'll take you back to chapter 17 because in fact chapter 17 is really the immediate background to this teaching in the book of Revelation on the bride of Christ. And in chapter 17, which to be honest is one of the more difficult chapters in Revelation to, to understand and to deal with, you actually have uh, uh, the Apostle John speaking about the prostitutes and also about the city of Babylon which opposes the church and opposes the work of God and of God's people. In fact, as you read through Revelation 17, one of the difficult things that you're trying to come to terms with is you're not sure whether John's speaking about a woman or whether he's talking about a city. Uh, Is it a woman he's talking about in this chapter or is it a city that he's uh, talking about in this chapter? 
And it's actually when you come to the very last verse of chapter 17 that you get the explanation uh, where we read, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And what John is doing is giving us a picture uh, through this chapter of this woman who personifies the city of Babylon. In fact, you could say that the Bible is a book about uh, two cities and two women. And the, the two cities are Babylon and Jerusalem, and the two women are a prostitute and the bride. And as you go through the book of Revelation, particularly in chapters 17 and 18, and you, you pick up uh, this teaching on the city of Babylon, what we need to understand is that Babylon represents worldly structures that oppose Christ and his church. Now, the nature of those worldly structures uh, have varied throughout history and can be understood in slightly different ways according to where you are in history. So, at the time that John was writing, undoubtedly, Rome, with its imperial power, coming against uh, the, the, the church and the work of God, uh, that would uh, be represented in the city of Babylon. Uh, and uh, you could see Babylon right through history in different ways opposing the church, but always it's a worldly spirit that's coming against the church. And I suppose today that you could say that Babylon is represented in the uh, hostile atheism that we're increasingly uh, confronting today, and also in rampant secularism and materialism that kind of magnifies money and despises the church. Those kind of worldly structures uh, that entice people and uh, uh, really come against the work of God and of the church. And so Babylon really represents those worldly structures, but it's per personified by the woman, the prostitute, because uh, within a worldly spirit there is that which entices and which glitters and which seduces. And uh, this prostitute uh, therefore personifies, represents the city of Babylon and uh, she, she glitters and seduces people away from the things of God. And at the same time, of course, what it means is that the church can be represented as, as looking weak. Uh, in our day, I suppose, looking old-fashioned, irrelevant, out of touch. Uh, we all know the terms, we all know the way that the church is so often dismissed today. Worldly structures are, are emphasised and magnified, but the, the church is uh, represented so often as being, being weak and even pathetic at times uh, uh, by the media and by worldly people. But in fact, as we read the Word of God, and as we read the book of Revelation particularly, we see this is not, of course, the end of the story. And you and I, together with our people, need to know the end of the story. And so you read in uh, chapter 18, which is a kind of poetic dirge that parallels Revelation chapter 17, that Babylon will fall. But at the same time, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven from God. So you've got these, uh, this contrast between these two cities. Chapter 18, Babylon will fall. Woe, woe uh, to you great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. And then in Revelation 21, we read of the city of God, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. We also see as we uh, look at these chapters that the prostitute who, as I say, really in some ways personifies the city of Babylon, she burns. And you'll see that in chapters 17 
and verse 16. Whereas the bride, who is Christ's woman, she is married to Christ. And so the prostitute burns, but the bride is married to Christ. So it's two cities and two women. As we come into uh, chapter 19, we begin with actually a celebration of what has happened, as, which has been described in the pre- previous two chapters, and that is the fall of Babylon. The song at the beginning of chapter 19 is actually celebrating from heaven's perspective the fall of Babylon. Let me just remind you of those verses again. John says, after this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Babylon has fallen, the prostitute has been burned, and heaven is celebrating. Now years ago I heard David Pawson say this. He said, there's a great irony in these verses in terms of uh, Handel's famous Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, Because uh, you know that uh, the Hallelujah Chorus that uh, comes in the Messiah, written by Handel, is actually based on these early verses from Revelation. And I remember David Pawson saying, of course, uh, the the Hallelujah Chorus is the favourite bit of the, uh, the Messiah. And often, uh, choirs love to come together and to sing the Messiah. And uh, the choirs that so often sing the Messiah are, in fact, uh, very often uh, groups of non-believing people. Uh, But they love the music and they love to sing it. And he says, when they get to sing in the Hallelujah Chorus, what they're actually celebrating is their own final downfall. (laughs) And there was a certain kind of irony in that. Um, But then, having celebrated from heaven's perspective the fall of Babylon and the burning of the prostitutes, John goes on to show uh, the church as the bride of Christ, which is being joined to Christ amidst tumultuous celebrations. And that's described, of course, in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Guys, we, we need to help our people to embrace the future by faith right now. Because this will help strengthen our people's resolve, it will sharpen their hope, and it will motivate commitments when there are distractions, and there are plenty of distractions, and it will motivate our people when times are tough, and sometimes times are very tough. There's something else that I want you to see here as we look at this today. I believe we must help our people to appreciate the sheer grandeur and majesty of being the bride of Christ. Uh, There should be a sense of wonder about us. I mean, sometimes, to be honest, I do wonder about us, but there there should be a sense of wonder about us. So let's pick up on this description of the church. And uh, there's a few things that we need to say that come out of this passage. I want to speak, first of all, about romance, because we're dealing here with the uh, Bride of Christ, we're dealing here with the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. And what we need to understand is when we speak about the church as the Bride of Christ, we're actually speaking about the greatest romance in all history. And the flavour of this, of course, can be picked up 
in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, we will be aware that in Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5 there is this very famous passage which speaks of the relationship between Christ and the church and at the same time speaks of the relationship between husbands and wives. And the relationship between one is kind of used to illustrate the relationship between the other. Uh, We know that uh, both are being spoken of here, relationship between Christ and the church, relationship between husbands and wives, but because we live in a man-centred age, we tend, I think, most commonly to stress from that passage the relationship between husbands and wives. I think it's probably how more commonly we do it. But let's put the emphasis today the other way round in the light of the subject we're looking at. And let's see it speaking to us about the relationship actually between Christ and the church. So if you go to Ephesians 5 and you pick up verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's actually describing the greatest romance in history. And if you study the word of God from beginning to end, what you'll see is that God has chased down his bride throughout history. And that uh, always Christ has been seeking to woo her and to win her. If you go to the Old Testament Again and again, you'll see that the nation of Israel is described in terms of the wife of God. But what you will always find is that whenever it is spoken of as the wife of God, always Israel is a faithless wife. And uh, you can see that uh, very graphically in Ezekiel 16. And you pick up at verse 32, you adulterous wife. So the prophet's uh, speaking here to Israel. You prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favours. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favours. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. I mean, a most condemning word about the prostitution of the wife of God, which is the nation of Israel, as it's being pictured here. And yet there's always that wooing side. Because although in very graphic language, the prophet goes on to speak about Israel's punishment, you go to verse 42, then my wrath against you will subside, and my jealous jealous anger will turn away from you. I'll be calm and no longer angry. You always sense that God is wanting to woo uh, this, 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 this bride, this wife, who'd, who goes into spiritual prostitution. Or if you, if you go to Isaiah and chapter 54, uh, you, you can get this wonderful wooing uh, by God of, of his people. So we're here in 25 of Isaiah uh, 54. Verse 25, and uh, oh, that's unfortunate, it's the wrong, <laughs> it's not awful when you're, pre- oh no, it's just, I've got it right, six, verse 6, sorry, it goes wrong verse. Isaiah 54, verse 6, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, 
A wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I'll bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And then you go to the prophecy of, of Hosea, and you remember that Hosea is actually told to marry a prostitute. And uh, uh, she becomes, again, unfaithful, and she leave, leaves uh, her husband. And uh, Hosea goes after her to woo her and to win her back. So you've got this consistent teaching throughout the Old Testament that Israel is unfaithful. She's a faithless wife. Uh, she's always going into spiritual prostitution, and yet God is seeking to woo and win back. Uh, the people. He wants the bride uh, for himself. And he doesn't give up. And that's what we come to in the New Testament. Because in Ephesians 5, we see that Christ's attentions crystallise in the church in this regard. And so in the verses in Ephesians 5, we see that Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for the church. I love that. He didn't just give himself for the church, he gave himself up. So everything was given in order to win the church as his bride. Also he washes the church, which speaks of the care and attention that Jesus lavishes on the church. And then he receives her as his radiant church. And so often, of course, as we read that scripture, we read it as he receives her as his radiant bride. I want you to notice something very particular now in those verses in Ephesians chapter 5 and specifically in verse 27 because it speaks about the church being presented to, to Christ as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Will you please note the holy and blameless And we go back to Ephesians 1, the same book of course, and in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, this is what we read, for he chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. You see the holy and blameless there, referred to the church and referred to us who are in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, This is a statement of how God sees us. Because he has chosen us in Christ, he sees us to be holy and blameless. It's actually a statement of justification. This uh, room is full of holy and blameless people in God's sight. Because we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus. But friends, this is also true of the church. It's how Christ sees her. He sees the church to be holy and blameless. Now I'm emphasising this for a particular reason. I don't know if, it was, if it's so strong now amongst us as it was a, a decade or so ago. But certainly, I think even in our churches, there was uh, something of a suggestion around and a feeling around that Christ could not yet return because the church does not yet look like this. That we're given over to the restoration of the church 
And actually at the moment the church doesn't look kind of spotless and without wrinkles and she doesn't look holy and blameless. And so Jesus cannot yet return because the church has not been brought to this position as described in Ephesians 5 and verse 27. Guys, can I say surely that is a misunderstanding of justification? You see, if I was to speak to you personally and say, if you died today, would you be accepted by God? I would expect you to say something to me like this. Yes, of course I will be accepted by God. Not because of anything I've achieved or done, but because God sees me in Christ. He sees me in the righteousness of his Son. And what's true of the Christian individually must be true of the church corporately. Because... The church corporately is made up of individual believers. And so to Jesus, the church is holy and it is blameless. The church does look radiant. Guys, he died to make us like that. Therefore, to make the whole church like that. And that's what he accomplished at the cross. Let's keep within the kind of uh, uh, marriage framework give it to you in an illustration. How, how, how does the bride look to the bridegroom on the wedding day? Think of marriages that you've taken. You know, how does the bride look to the bridegroom on the wedding day? I think the answer is something like this, just perfect. <laughs> That's how she looks. She looks just perfect. Obviously, when I was at Brighton for 24 years, I was involved in a, in a lot of weddings and uh, whenever I actually took a, a marriage service, I, I was always keenly observant of how the bridegroom reacted when the bride appeared. And uh, if you know the, 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 the Clarendon Centre of the CCK building, we've got kind of a half balcony there, really. And uh, what was quickly adopted when we got into that building is the, the, the kind of entrance point for the bride is that she'd come up a back staircase and suddenly appear on the balcony. It's quite a spectacular sort of appearance. In fact, one or two even managed to align it with a spotlight that came on at the same time. <laughs> And so, so that there would be everybody waiting, and there would be the bridegroom, and he was waiting, and suddenly the bride would appear uh, up on the balcony. And that was, that was always a precious moment, and uh, it was always, you could always tell there was deep emotion in, in the bridegroom. I, I, I once took an extremely emotional wedding uh, at Brighton. And, uh, I mean, the, the wedding party, I mean, they danced throughout the whole service. Um, they were crying. And when the bride reached the front, the bridegroom literally fell on his knees. Uh, it was, uh, uh, Terry Virgo was at the service at the time. And I remember he spoke to me afterwards. He said, I'm glad you, but you're glad that's over. Well, <laughs> I wasn't away because it was a highly emotional service. I've even heard of bridegrooms who have fainted when they've seen the bride. Uh, fortunately, that didn't, didn't happen to me. But, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the bride. She looks radiant. She looks wonderful. She looks perfect. Now, you're a bit more objective. You could actually stand back and say, say I don't really understand what he sees in her. <laughs> and by your laughter, some of you have obviously done that. All right. <laughs> can I say we can look at the church like that? You know, we don't really see what Christ sees in her. What does Christ see in the church? The answer is, he sees a radiant bride, holy and blameless. He's given up his life for the bride. And so we say, and the scripture says, Christ loves the church. And that issues in justification, 
So, theology becomes romantic. And it means this, that whenever Christ returns, he'll see and receive a radiant bride whenever he comes back. He gave himself up so that the church would be like that. And so, as leaders, as pastors, it's so important that we help our people to see what the church looks like to Christ. Because we can always be thinking what the church looks like to us. But the romance of it is what the church looks like to Christ. Radiant, spotless, without wrinkle, holy and blameless. Because Christ gave himself up for the church to be like that. Let's talk secondly about celebration. What we are reading in Revelation 19 puts everything actually in the context of Christ's return. And uh, I didn't read the verses, but the, uh, in a way the most picturesque description of the return of Christ is given in Revelation chapter 19 down from verse 11. Uh, I sometimes wonder, and I, I ask about this as I travel around the churches, if we've got, we've, if we've got a lost theme in our preaching today. You know, how, how often do we actually preach the return of Jesus Christ? Uh, I wonder if we've reacted sometimes to some old-fashioned preaching. I certainly grew up in a background where I, I knew preachers who, who would say, if Jesus doesn't come tonight, or sorry, if Jesus comes tonight, would you be ready to receive him? Trouble is, Jesus doesn't come tonight. And there's only so many Sundays you can keep on saying that before actually the congregation get a bit weary, you know. There's only so many times that you stop going to the cinema that night in case Jesus comes back. You know, I mean, that, was, that was the kind of thing you, were, you thought you were expected to do. You, know? so, you can only do that for so long and Jesus doesn't come back. So I think we got weary with that. Um, I think also perhaps sometimes there is so much confusion about end times theology that people just want to steer clear of it. And I think, therefore, we're not preaching this as we should. Can I remind you in Titus 2.13 that the Apostle Paul says that actually this is our blessed hope. We wait for the return of our God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our blessed hope. And we must bring it into our preaching. In that context of the return of Christ, we have shouts of celebration, especially around the wedding supper of the Lamb. You see that in verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder. By the way, in the book of Revelation, John is always saying it's like this, it's like this, because it's always beyond description. This is the best he can do. It's like this, but it's greater than this. And I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Now the the Bible is full of hallelujahs, isn't it? Actually it's not. Certainly they're there in the Old Testament. You may be surprised some of you to hear this is the only place in the New Testament where the word hallelujah is used. So in the New Testament the word hallelujah is reserved actually for the fall of Babylon and for the church as the bride. And here, of course, we have the description of the wedding supper of the Lamb, which has come. How do we have a real celebration? Well, I suppose, very commonly, we do it through having a meal. And uh, certainly that's true of weddings. That uh, when we have a wedding, we tend to have a meal. 
I, and I know some of you, will have actually ministered in cultures where people ruin themselves on the expense of the wedding. And I've been in cultures where people, parents, take out huge loans in order to put on a lavish wedding and a lavish wedding supper. Sometimes I wonder if it's beginning to creep into our society a bit, actually. And that even in our churches, weddings can become a little competitive. You know, it was great a month ago when that couple was married. I wonder if we can just add a bit to that. And uh, I think we've got to restore weddings a bit in our churches. And so after all, the, the issue is, is not one day of a wedding. The issue is the marriage. And we must be careful that our people concentrate, our couples concentrate on the marriage a little bit more than perhaps sometimes on the wedding. And you can have quite a, quite a cheap wedding reception, particularly in a church family, with full joy. Now, people, I don't want to be legalistic about it. If people want to spend a lot of money on, on a wedding, they've got some money to do so. I'm not saying that they mustn't do it. But I'm just concerned that in these days of austerity and pressure that we don't have young couples who are overspending for one day when actually the important thing is the marriage and you can have a wedding day which is full of fun, full of joy, full of celebration without huge expense. Indians certainly know how to celebrate with a meal. I was teaching in India one um, public holiday, and so we all had a, a day off. And well, I wasn't teaching on the public holiday, it was the point, we had a day off. And uh, we all went down as a church to the beach for a picnic, and I thought it'd be, you know, a sandwich and a bottle of orange juice, but actually it was tureens of curry, of huge-sized trestle tables. I mean, it was just incredible. Uh, most extraordinary picnic I've ever witnessed or experienced. I think celebration, therefore, ought to be actually the mood of the Lord's Supper. It is a meal, and by kind of removing it out of the context of a full meal, which obviously we often do for practical reasons, we can perhaps overlook that. My own Christian background meant that I took communion in very sombre settings, where deacons kind of whispered and crept around and... You were terrified if a floorboard creaked because God might open up the earth and swallow you all. It was that kind of atmosphere. There is a serious side to the Lord's Supper. We remember the Lord's death. But I think it must also, at the same time, paradoxically, be full of joy because of the achievements of the cross. And we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are looking forward to his return and to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, for the church today, Babylon can often look powerful and strong. What we need to remember and what our people need to be assured of is that after present hardships, what will come is the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to celebrate. I wonder this, when we think of the church as the bride of Christ, is that more meaningful to the persecuted church than it is to us. Let's face it, we have our challenges, but we still have it pretty easy. I'm going to say something here, and I know I've got the risk of being misunderstood, and I hope you'll hear what I'm really saying. I'm a little concerned, personally, and this is a personal thing, that it seems to become almost a strapline sometimes today that church is fun. Now, I believe that you can have huge fun in the church, I think there needs to be laughter in our church meetings. 
I think as a Christian you can have more fun with other Christians than in any other setting. All of that I accept. But I'm just a little nervous if the strapline becomes church is fun when so many believers today around the world are living right on the edge. And I, I think of Christians in Cuba at the present time under huge pressure. I wonder, is church fun? You know, they're, they're living right on the edge, really. Or is church fun for believers in Iraq and Iran? Probably they still laugh and have their fun. But I just think we need to be a bit careful that in this day when everything has to be fun, that we don't actually almost again submit to a worldly spirit. And the strap line becomes church's fun when so many believers live on the edge. For so many, Babylon might seem to be triumphing. But in Revelation 17, 14, we see that Babylon wages war against the Lamb and against the followers of the Lamb. And it's interesting that whenever the church is under persecution, the favourite scriptures for persecuted believers are always the Psalms and always the book of Revelation. Because when you come again to Revelation 17, 14, what you read is that Babylon will fall. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them. Because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. One day the celebrations are going to begin. All trials will be over. Persecutions will cease. It will be the marriage supper of the Lamb that will climax our history. And then I'd like us to think of some of the people in our churches. And all of you will know that as you look round your congregation, you look at one after another, you can think of all sorts of challenges, all sorts of trials, all sorts of tragedies sometimes, hard stories, difficult circumstances. Our people are going through these things day in, day out, year in, year out. And they need the reminder, but we are the bride of Christ. And it won't end in despair, but it will end in celebration and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now there's a question, I think probably it arises from my teacher on eschatology, but a question I'm very often asked, and it's this. Does that mean that we will literally eat together? And uh, there is a kind of teaching that would suggest that, you know, the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's, it's a metaphorical uh, statement, it's a picture, we're living here in a book of metaphors and pictures, and so you speak of the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's, it's a metaphor for our rejoicing and celebration. I remember years ago when I was uh, ministering uh, one occasion in Dubai into what is, of course, a very, very multicultural, multinational church, that I raised this with the church in Dubai. And uh, I said, what, what would you feel uh, as a church if you were invited to a wedding and you were invited to the wedding supper? And then you, you had the, the wedding, uh, you went through the service, and then you had, you know, the four hours of photographs afterwards. I mean, every church leader needs in the healing for, from that. But uh, imagine that you've been through, uh, through this, and then the, the best man stands up at the end and he, he says, well, uh, I, I'm so glad you've been here today. I just want to say to you that although you've been invited to the reception, it is in fact metaphorical. Uh, I, I said... I said, I wonder how you'd react. And I said, I think you'd react according to your culture. So if you were British, what you would do is moan. 
right? Oh, oh, that's typical, isn't it? You know, we come here expecting a good meal, out all these photographs. You know, it's, it's, I blame the government. It's a story to say. It's cut, you know. That would be the British response. I said, if you were South Africans, because of course we have South Africans in every one of our churches. I said, if you were South African, I said, I know what you do. You say, we'll make a plan. Because if you know the South African culture, they always say, we'll make a plan. Uh, and so that's what, what you would do. A lot of Indians in the church in Dubai, I said, now you Indians, what would you do? I said, I know what you'd do. You'd set fire to the cushions and the programs, the orders of service, you'd throw them in the air and have a riot, because of course that's what Indians do. (laughs) And then I said, Filipinos, what about you? Because we had a lot of Filipinos there too. Very tactile of Filipinos, social, very kind of, very warm, very soft, gentle people. And I said, I know what you'd do, you'd hold hands and sing to one another. Well, I mean, they just love this because it kind of described their cultures absolutely. But I think whatever our culture, we'd be pretty, pretty fed up, that we weren't being fed up, if you know, we'd, you know we'd, be, we'd be pretty put out if there was actually no food to eat. We're going to celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. Will it be an actual meal? Let me tell you this, it will be real, probably better than a meal as we know it now. And for many years I've been on a mission, particularly with leaders, to say, guys, please do not be bland about heaven. Because I think our tendency, whenever we preach heaven or the eternal state, is to demonish rather than actually to uh, put a bigger picture. And so, you know, meals, they become metaphorical and... uh, you know, it does become so easy to think of heaven as sitting, you know, famously on that cloud with a, a guitar on a kind of endless public bank holiday. You know, that's a, you know, that is the kind of picture that can so easily be put across when actually everything is going to be magnified in heaven. Obviously, worship will be magnified, but everything will be magnified. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce and the busload of uh, people from hell come to heaven? And as they get out of the bus, they, they tread on the grass and they cut their feet because the grass is so sharp. And somebody tries to pick up a leaf and finds he can't because actually it's too heavy to lift. And I read that book and suddenly everything reversed for me. I saw it was biblical, that we tend to think of this as the real and the solid and heaven as the kind of ethereal and vague and it's the other way round completely. This is the vague and the ethereal. And heaven in the eternal state. That's the real and the solid. So don't be bland about heaven. The day will come when Babylon will fall. There'll be no more persecution, no more worldly systems that oppose us. Worldly structures will collapse. Woe, woe, O city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom is ripped, really. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will celebrate with his bride, the church. Now this week, next week, What will your people walk into? What will be the circumstances they'll be in at home? Single mums, guys looking for employment, guys and ladies in really pressurised jobs these days, really under pressure. All sorts of pressures and problems and difficulties that our poor people are walking through day by day. We need to remind them in the oasis, which is the church, that finally there's going to be a celebration. It will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now let me bring you thirdly to preparation. And I want to raise a question with you here. When are we the bride of Christ? 
Is it now, or will it be in the future? And I want to remind you, I'm sure you know this, but I want to remind you that in Bible times, the culture dictated a different approach to marriage than we know in our Western society. And uh, this different approach is very much reflected in what happened with Mary and Joseph before, Joseph, before Jesus was born. So if you go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, you get it spelt out there. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, my translation says that Mary and Joseph were pledged to be married. The Greek word is betrothal. Uh, Betrothal had taken place between Mary and Joseph and betrothal was a legally binding situation. And if you were betrothed to one another, you could actually be called already husband and wife and yet you had not yet come to live together, but it was that strong a relationship. And so with Mary and Joseph, of course, they were betrothed, but we know that they had not had sex at the time that Mary discovered she was pregnant. This was a miracle, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary's life and body. But because Mary is pregnant, Joseph, acting according to the laws on divorce, decides to divorce her. And you could say, but they weren't married. But that's the whole point. It was a different culture. And if you were betrothed, and actually the lady you were betrothed to got pregnant, you had the right to divorce her. And so Joseph was responding to the uh, situation and the culture of the time. Now I want you to bring that to Christ and the church. Because if you do... I think you can make out a case for saying that presently the church is betrothed to Christ and will become the bride at the end of history. And there are verses that seem to concur with that because if you come here to chapter 19 again and verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. We're talking here about the end of history. At the end of history the wedding of the Lamb has come. And then if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, there's another interesting scripture uh, that bears on this, where Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But the word promised is again betrothed. Paul says, look, I have betrothed you to one husband. I betrothed you to Christ so that I might actually present you as a pure virgin to him. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, 27, which we've been looking at, the whole idea of the, the church being presented to Christ, again sounds more kind of like end time. And then you come to, again to Revelation and to chapter 21 and verse 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. One of the most important verses in the Bible, because at this point, every biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. What God said in the Old Testament, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. What Jesus said in Matthew 19 at the regeneration of all of creation. 
What Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 8, that the whole of creation is apparently uh, is presently in decay and being polluted, uh, but it's waiting for its day of liberation, uh, the liberation of the sons of God. It's what Peter is speaking about in Acts chapter 3, when he says Christ remains in heaven until the time comes for him to restore all things, the whole of creation. And what Peter again says in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says the present elements will be dissolved in fire, but out of that there will emerge a new heavens and a new earth. You come to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, and John says, I see it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. All biblical prophecy is fulfilled. We're at the very end. And then John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. Think about it. It's such a familiar verse, but it's a crazy picture. You've got a a city dressed up like a bride. I mean, talk about here comes the bride all fat and wide. I mean, there you've got it, the, the city dressed up as a bride. It's an extraordinary picture. But again, it's undoubtedly the end of history. So you take all of that together and it seems that the church is betrothed to Christ and we will become the bride at the climax of the ages with the wedding supper of the Lamb. And having led you down that path and lined up all the doctrinal ducks in a row, I've got to tell you there's a problem with that. Because if you go to Revelation 22... And to verse 17, what we read there is the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. There's actually two ways of reading that verse. It could be an appeal to the unbeliever to come or is it an appeal to Christ? And the spirit and the bride say, Jesus, it's time to come. But either way, the bride is now. (laughs) Right now, the spirit and the bride say come. So I've just corrupted what I've been just teaching you. I think there's therefore, I would suggest in scripture this, that we're already the bride and we will become the bride. And you say, hmm, but let me remind you of Romans 8, verse 30. Because I think it's a, a Romans 8, verse 30 type of verse. You know this, this verse so well, of course, but we read there that those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also, past tense, glorified. So in the past he predestined us, in the past he called us, uh, in the past he justified us, he also, past tense, glorified us. And I can look at you here today and I can see that you are predestined in the past, that you've been called in the past, you've been justified in the past, but to be honest, you don't look glorified. All right? You look mystified and some of you look exhaustified, but you don't look glorified. So what do we say as preachers? We say it is so certain to happen that if we've been predestined, called and justified, that we will be glorified, that we can speak of it as though it's true right now. It's the same here, I think. We will so certainly be the bride of Christ corporately that we can speak of it as though it is already true. We are the bride of Christ. We will be the bride of Christ. At which point something rather odd happens in this passage of Scripture. 
Verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Oops! I thought we'd already said that Christ sees the church as radiant, holy and blameless. And suddenly we're reading about the church making herself ready. And that can seem a contradiction. So let me just try and unravel this for you. This will be brief, but I'm going to give you an explanation, a translation, an illustration and a confirmation. Okay, here's, here's, the, here's the explanation. If you read Beale's commentary on Revelation, which is in a league of its own, it is, if you've only got uh, money to buy one commentary on Revelation, buy Beale. B-E-A-L-E. It's a superb commentary. Just back it up um, with the, the Land, the Beast and the Devil by John Hosier. But you must get Beale's commentary on Revelation. And on this particular passage, he says this. This passage, this is encouraging, is difficult and must therefore receive detailed comments. He then gives 11 pages of detailed comments. Fortunately, he rests a lot of his case on another commentator called Mounts, who's actually rather briefer. Mounts says, this does not deny the Pauline doctrine of justification based on the righteous obedience of Christ, but suggests that a transformed life is the proper response by the justified to the call of the heavenly bridegroom. I'll put it to you like this. These verses describe the state of grace that the church is presently in. If you read on in verse 10, it speaks of those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Well, that's us. That's the true church. By repentance, faith, and the good works that follow from repentance and faith, the church has already made herself ready. So this describes the state of grace we are presently in. Now let me go to translation. In the NIV, which I'm reading from, fine linen, bright and clean were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The ESV is better. The ESV translates it like this. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Better translation. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Listen to Beale again. White robes elsewhere in Revelation are equated with both faithful works in this life and with the final reward resulting from faithful living. So the saints both possess pure garments during their earthly sojourn and also receive white robes when they enter heaven. And he gives a number of biblical references to back that up. In other words, because of grace, because we're justified, right now we're clothed in white robes, but as we do righteous deeds as believers, it's as though we're able to put on fine linen as a reward. In other words, we can dress up for the wedding because of our righteous deeds. Now let me bring you to the illustration And this, I hope, will serve to make the theology that I've just tried to impart to you clear. Okay, so this is the illustration. Let me ask you this. Why does a bride make such an effort on her wedding day? Think about it. 
It is not so the bridegroom will accept her because that is already settled. It's because the bride knows she's accepted and loved that she wants to please the bridegroom on the wedding day. And I guess that the bride could turn up in a pair of ripped jeans and purple balaclava and she'd still be accepted. Because that's already settled, probably in some of our churches they do. But I mean, that's that's accepted. She's accepted. The bridegroom has accepted her. And it's because of the love that he has for her and the acceptance that he has made of her already that the bride becomes a fanatic. And she wants to look the best on the wedding day. I've got six granddaughters and even now I'm thinking if I'm spared to see them married I've got emigration papers ready. You know, I know what it's going to be like because brides go fanatical about the wedding day. The bride prepares because she's accepted and loved. That's us guys. We're already accepted and loved. So we prepare. And let me give you confirmation, and I'm talking about a biblical confirmation. If you go to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13, let me remind you of what we often read individually, but let me make it corporate. In Revelation 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. God's work salvation in, Paul's appeal is that we work it out, that we demonstrate what God has worked into us. Actually, as corporate churches, it needs to be like that. Because as churches, God has worked salvation into us. Church, work it out. And leaders, that's where you've got a particular task. You've got to help your church to actually work it out. I want to bring you just to one closing verse and it's in, again, the book of Revelation here, chapter 21 and it's verse 9. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I love that verse. How do our people see the church? They can be very battered through circumstances, through what's happening at work, through not being able to get work. And everything can seem difficult and here they are part of what may sometimes be quite a small community and uh, there's the big world out there. You know, how do our people see the church? Do they sometimes feel overwhelmed? Do some of our people feel We're not seeing the breakthroughs. We're not making the impact. Now, some of you, I know, are leading good, big, strong churches. Some of you will be in smaller, perhaps more struggling causes. And I know across the New Frontiers family, we've got some great churches these days. We think of churches that are now touching a thousand or more. I mean, they really are. We're getting... Congregation, some of our churches now up to 1,400 having gone multi-site. I mean, there's some great things going on. There's some big churches. There's some great churches. You may be in something that you feel is small and struggling. 
Look, you need to see that you too are a great church. It's the teaching of the church as the bride of Christ. I want you to, how do you see your church? Um, I'm sure Jeremy and Anne would remember, I don't know how many else would, but in the early years of New Frontiers, there was a strong prophetic figure that used to work with Terry uh, called uh, Alan Vincent. And I, I remember once him preaching a message about Abraham, and he said all that Abraham had was Sarah. And that's all he had. And from her, there was going to come a great people, a great nation. He just had to work with what he had. All he had was Sarah. And he said, your church is your Sarah. That's <laughs> what you've got. She's your Sarah, your church. But what could God do through that? Even as God worked through Abraham and Sarah. The real issue is, my friends, how is the church seen from the heavenly perspective? When you see the pride here, one of the seven angels came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You see the pleasure and the pride of heaven. You see the angels' enthusiasm and pride. When I was in, in the Brighton church, I once spoke to a lady who worked in a wedding gown shop every day. People were coming in, brides-to-be, and they were getting their bridal dresses. And I, I said to her on one occasion, I said, when these young women come in and they put on a bridal gown, I said, I said do, do the mothers get emotional? And uh, she said to me, it's not the mothers, it's the fathers, she said. <laughs> when they come in and it's their daughter and she puts on a wedding dress, she, they just go to pieces. So she said, you know, they look so proud, they start to cry and they turn their back, you know, so they won't be seen to, to be crying. What I want you to see here is the pride of this angel, this mighty angel and the beauty of the church. The church, the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. Fantastic. And we need to help our people see the wonder and the majesty of being the church. It's such a romance. Christ gave himself up for the church. Whatever our people face today, celebrations are coming. Help them to hold on in tough times because this is finally going to work out in the fall of Babylon, the burning of the prostitutes and the celebration of the wedding supper of the Lamb. And because we're accepted, let's prepare for the wedding day even as any bride would. And that's particularly the responsibility of you leaders and you pastors, to help bring your church through to be the very best for the bridegroom. We sang that song just before I got up to speak. The Spirit and the Bride say come. And one day, the end of history will, will be achieved. We will come to the last day. That will be the last time on the clock, last day on the calendar. And however exactly it happens, and there's obviously a lot of picture language beyond our imagination, uh, puts puts things beyond our imagination in the New Testament, but if you like, the, the gates of heaven will open, the clouds will disappear, and the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, majestic in glory, coming with the hosts of heaven, the bridegroom who is coming for his bride. Babylon will fall, the prostitute will burn, the bride we'll be joined to Jesus Christ, we'll be married, become the wife of the Lamb, we will celebrate at the wedding supper and we'll go on celebrating forever.
we will worship forever. We will see God face to face and will reign in a universe that has been rearranged by the bridegroom, fit for the bride to live in, to explore and to enjoy forever. Church, we are the bride of Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you.